Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. So um, we, we deal with this theme quite a bit uh, on this show, particularly these days, um, this kind of notion of redemption. Uh, we did a whole show about Dante's Inferno and what it actually means to people and how people get over horrible things in their lives using Dante's Inferno. Dante's Inferno is even now taught uh, and used in prisons where prisoners relate to this idea right away. And so um, we've done a lot of shows about walking through the dark woods of life. And this is another one. Um, and this is sort of an odd one, too, because it's just one of those peculiar things where I was sort of approached about two books within the same 24-hour period. And I was kind of looking at the emails about these books, and I thought, you know, I think maybe these books belong together on the same show. Maybe these stories are, they're not the same story by any means, but they are stories that, that have a kinship to them. They are stories about how you come back uh, from life's difficulties. And when we say life's difficulties, we mean what most of us think of life's difficulties multiplied by 10 or cubed or something like that. These are uh, the kinds of conditions that would um, would just completely unhinge many people. So uh, we have these two stories here today. Let me just kind of give you a hint as to what they are, and then you'll uh, meet the tellers of those stories. Uh, the first story uh, is the story uh, mainly of Dr. William Pettit. It's a name most of you know here in Connecticut. These are the... the um, brutal uh, murders of his wife and two daughters uh, are the the crime story that most people in Connecticut know, along with Newtown, I think, here in the 21st century. Uh, Ryan D'Agostino is here. He's the editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics uh, and the author of The Rising, Murder, Heartbreak, and the Power of Human Resilience in an American Town. This is the story of the entire Pettit case, but it really is very specifically the story of William Pettit, Pettit and how he uh, a well, what he went through, and then kind of how he came out on the other side of it. Uh, and then you'll see what I mean here. Now, Randall Horton is with us. He's an associate professor of English at the University of New Haven. He's the author of Hook, a memoir, as well as um, the author of a lot of poetry as well. And Hook, a memoir, is his story uh, of his own journey into uh, drug use, to the selling of drugs, to homelessness, to imprisonment, and then a resurrection, uh, a movement up and out from the absolute uh, depths. Uh, So these are both two stories of people who took a journey to the underworld, which we see a lot of in mythology, obviously. They took a journey each to their own personal underworld uh, and came back out on the other side. So uh, they have very specific stories to tell, which they will tell. And then I think maybe they can talk to one another about this, too, because there are a lot of common threads here. So, Ryan, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I'm thinking most people do know the story of William Pettit, or as is often the case, people think they know the story of Dr. William Pettit and the, the murders in Cheshire. Uh, but in terms terms of the, what we want to talk about today, particularly that notion of resilience, maybe an overworked word these days, but uh, maybe just beginning by telling the story of what did happen uh, on the night that changed Bill Pettit's life. Yeah, what, what did happen is, is that he was uh, uh, with his family in their home in Cheshire, a, a nice house on a quiet street in a, in a peaceful town, a nice community, and, and he fell asleep on the couch 
Uh, his wife and daughters, uh, Michaela was 11, Haley was uh, 17, and his wife Jennifer, they watch their TV show, they go up to bed, they leave Bill snoozing, and about 2 or 3 in the morning, uh, two men broke into the house through the basement, uh, found a baseball bat, and beat Bill in the head repeatedly and tied him up uh, back down in the basement. And then over a period of hours, proceed to torture uh, Jennifer, his wife, and the, and the two girls. They end up, one of them brings Jennifer to the bank uh, to withdraw money. Uh, they come back. By the end of it, Jennifer had been raped and strangled. Uh, Michaela, the younger daughter, was also raped. Uh, the two girls died in a fire that the two men set to the house. Uh, and Bill was trying to escape at the time to call 911 from the neighbor's house. And, and he was the only survivor the two men were were caught on the scene and and are now in in jail prison for the rest of their lives and and bill was left really uh with nothing you know his house he's never been back to it uh his family his medical career everything sort of disintegrated and he was sort of uh, in this this terrible abyss and didn't know for a long time how and if he would get out of it and whether he even wanted to um uh, it's something that he has both Talked about and not talked about, I think. You know, I mean, his activities uh, on behalf of his foundation and, and uh, on on behalf of or in support of the death penalty are pretty well known and pretty highly publicized. But um, but my sense is that what I was reading in your book was stuff that maybe I hadn't read before. I mean, I'm not sure that he'd really re- kind of talked about this process of losing everything, grieving and, and moving forward before. How How alien to him was that? Completely. I mean, he was he might as well have found himself on, on, on Mars after all of this. He was a very driven guy. He grew up in Plainville in, in the kind of family where, you know, you work hard, you get ahead. He was top of his class. He was captain of this. He was captain of that and, and had his own successful practice and like rising to the top of his field. You know, a driven father, a committed husband, a busy guy. Uh, and then all that disappeared. So and he, he's not uh, a gregarious guy he doesn't he's not given to talking about his feelings um i talk a lot in the book about this sort of old kind of connecticut yankee reserve of like you just sort of go about your business and and so when this happened he wasn't well versed in the the language of recovery and the the psychologizing that that happens so much these days he 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 was not going to enter a life of being a sort of professional victim of this and, and just keep talking about it. So when I sat down with him, I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with him. And it was it was difficult. And, and he was uh, trying very hard to answer questions that were sometimes unanswerable. I mean, you ask someone in his position, well, how are you getting through this? How are you – what are you doing? And and a lot of times it was like, I don't know. You know I don't really know. But, but we dug and we dug and – and we found a couple of things that I think were were very important. <clears throat> what I what I came to understand <clears throat> about about his recovery and how he was doing because that's what everybody wants to know. Mm. How, how, you know how is he? How is he? He's not all better. You know, he's never going to be all better. He's never going to be his old old self again. But he's functioning. He's running a successful foundation. He has a wonderful new wife and a beautiful uh, little boy. How, how is he functioning that much and actually trying to not only just survive and get by, but really try to live a life. One of the biggest things he did, and it was, I, don't, I don't think it was conscious, but he would try to get like maybe 10 minutes in a row of feeling all right. Mm-hmm. Maybe then it was 15 minutes. Maybe it was 20 minutes. And, you know, maybe, Randall, you can talk about this later too because I think that's sometimes when you're, when you're that low and, 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 and hope, hope is so absent, it's like you start putting a life together 10 or 20 minutes at a time, and he very much did that. 
I want to get to Randall next, but just uh, one thing that you said. There was one thing that really jumped out at me uh, elsewhere in the book, and I think it was he was talking about whatever kind of medications that he was trying to use just to sleep. Yeah. Sleep, not, not a good sleeper for most of his life anyway. Uh, this assault happened to him and to his family while he was asleep, so uh, that would make it hard for probably you know, for you to sleep comfortably uh, thereafter. And, and then obviously just haunted by by all the loss and all the grief, also a disturbance of sleep. But there was one. I think there was a description of uh, of being able to get enough sleep so that he would wake up and have a blissful moment of having forgotten. Oh. Um, but to me, th- that struck me as the worst thing in the world, yeah. to wake up having forgotten and then having to absorb the news kind of all over again. All over again, again and again. That split second of like, was, that, was it a dream? Is, is, is this my life? Yep, it is. And a second later, he's, you know, he's back into it and that's his day. But the, the reason I wanted to tell his, his story it was, is, is because he would then get through the day. He would get past that and... You know, he's a sort of stone-faced guy, and I attended both of the trials of, of the two men who did this in, in New Haven. I would sit there and sort of watch Bill through it all, and he was sort of unmoving and unflinching. And and we talked about that, and it was, and he sort of said, I don't know, I guess, you know, I just sort of did it. And his wife said, no, 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 Bill, you, you did it. You know, most people would have, you know, crawled under a rock or, or couldn't do it, but but you – you did in it, and and what lifted him, and, and he, so so I said, well, you know, how, okay, how? And what lifted him up was the the response from people around him, his family, strangers, like people around the world, sending him money from China, like just overwhelming. And and he thought, well, instead of focusing and dwelling on the evil that that was visited upon me and my family that night in Cheshire, I'm going to look at this other reaction uh, from the thousands of other people, not these two guys. And his takeaway from all this is, is, has been that people are basically good. And for, for, for him, for Bill Pettit to, to walk away from what happened to him with that conclusion was inspiring to me. And so that's why I thought, well, okay, I've got to write this book because if anyone else can feel that same inspiration, you know, it's worth it. All right, let's uh, begin anyway to hear the other story that's represented here. The book is Hook by Randall Horton, Hook being um, a nickname that you had at one point, right? Yes, of course, yes. That was the nickname I sort of went by when I was on the, <coughs> in that world on the streets, if you want to put it. Yeah. Well, tell, tell, <laughs> us, tell us about that world. Who, who were you when you were Hook? What, what were you doing? <laughs> well, when I was Hook, I guess I had just, you know, I guess it's sort of, if you want to frame it, you know, I was in college, um, you know, trying to, you know, get a degree, trying to sort of figure out what my life was. And um, um, and then it sort of made, you know, these series of, of decisions and, you know, which would probably, you know, affect my life, you know, for, you know, probably the next 30 or so years. I, I, you know, I made a conscious decision to sort of get involved in drugs. And um, you got to understand this was sort of like the beginning of the 80s. And so this is sort of the beginning of the cocaine and um, you know, experimentation, which would lead to the crack wars and things like that. Um, and so I sort of got into that, and then I, um, I became friends with these people who were sort of selling, um, you know, and doing the Caribbean, and they were going to South America. And so that became very enticing to me. And so, you know, doing that whole transition, I become, I, I sort of got the nickname of Hook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of how, to, how that, you know, it sort of became one of those things of being able to hook up these street deals and, you know, convince people to do things that I wanted them to do, you know, for the sake of, you know, maybe my own betterment, if it, for, you know, for a lack of a, lack of a better word or phrase. Um, and so it began this whole odyssey. Uh, you talk about Dante. Um, you know, you, you go through this whole, I go, I, I go through this whole period of the 80s um, where um, I'm probably, you know, in that whole conversation of the war on drugs and, um, you know, what that means in terms of being in an urban city. 
Um, and so I found myself, you know, in that in that whole underworld um, of someone who necessarily didn't come from that world, uh, who didn't grow up like that. So it was very, I was very oxymoronic for me to even be in that situation. And then what happens is, um, as I found myself in that situation, I became more and more addicted to the drugs. And so the drugs begin to take over, and then all of a sudden it comes to it, it consumes you. Um, and then you can't, and then you, you know, one day you find yourself, you're homeless, um, you know, wandering the streets. And I did that for like two or three years. Um, people, you know, and so I, you know, slept in abandoned buildings, shelters, um, went to soup kitchens. Um, and, you know, at that point, you know, you, you become, you know, you become hopeless and you're wondering, you know, how am I going to get out of this thing that I sort of, you know, created for myself? Um, and there's just no way to get outside, no, no way to climb up the rope to the sort of get somewhere. And so, it was a series of those things, you know. So I, you know, I straddled both. I straddled that, you know, the world of that I was sort of fell in love with, with the world I wanted to be in, which was the thing that I grew up with and sort of knew right from wrong. And so I was straddling both worlds, and um, which would eventually, you know, lead to incarceration. Um, and it was probably only through then that um, I began to to understand, you know, sort of ramifications of some of the things that I'd done throughout the course of, of my life over, you know, decades. Um, and so then began the sort of the process of sort of trying to climb out of the, you know, all of the trouble that I had sort of caused for myself, which was insurmountable. At one time, I thought I never could have predicted that this would be the future, uh, sitting, even sitting here today writing a book or being an author, being a writer. Um, so, yeah. You know, this uh, book is full of hair-raising stories. I mean, uh, it feels almost as though an average day is something that most of us would find very terrifying and nerve-wracking. I mean, there are betrayals and deals that just go bad in really weird ways and Mm -hmm. guns that get drawn and moments where you are on the brink of being killed, uh, moments where you are on the brink of doing serious harm to someone else. Um, All those things are in the book, and maybe we can talk specifically about them as we go along if we have time. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I think just to return to what you just said, though, okay, so you were on the one hand growing up to – to kind of go up the ladder of success. Right. You were at right. Howard University, exactly. or at prestigious I, university, yeah, yeah. and suddenly you're doing all this stuff, mm-hmm. which, I mean, if I went through 24 hours like that, I, <laughs> I have to be hospitalized immediately. You right. know? And yeah, no, I've put did, my body through a lot. Did right. you? But did you get... Was there, I mean, obviously you get addicted to drugs, uh, your brain chemistry starts releasing dopamine and stuff like that that make you want more of the thing that just made that thing happen in your brain. But was this, was that also part of the brain chemistry, the adrenaline, this? That was the bigger thing. I mean, I think for a long time it was the adrenaline, the adrenaline rush. And I think I figured this out um, years later. Um, it was the adrenaline of doing all those things because if you notice in the book, I not only talk about, you know, sort of the drug activity, but some of the other things as well that was sort of risk-taking um, that I sort of, you know, gravitated towards. Um, and it was more so that in the, you know, beginning than sort of the drugs. Um, I guess I was probably a functional addict if, you know, at best. Um, and, you know, and the thing, you know, being access to so much as, you know, at, at one point, um, it was, and then when you don't have it, that's when the addiction really kicks in, and then you realize that, whoa, I can't handle this. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. Well, 
I want to get into some of the parallelism, and okay. there's never an exact parallel, but, right, but right. some interesting things here. And I think one of them, one of the themes that I see in these two books and these two stories is fatherhood. Uh, and uh, we're going to come back to Randall in just a second, talk to him about his relationship with his father, which is, I think, kind of key uh, to one of the kind of turning points in this in this whole story. But but I'll come back to you for a second here, Ryan, because obviously maybe the defining thing that Bill Pettit was and is is a father, a father now of at the of the book. He's a 57-year-old a man with an eight-month-old uh, baby, but he had these two daughters who, I mean, things change on any given day. You know, you have a bad day at work, or you and your wife have a fight or something like that, But and, and you can even have a bad day with your kids. But boy, there's something about being a parent. It just doesn't change, you know? I mean, how you feel about that, how you feel about that set of obligations doesn't change. And so it, there's a way in which this tragedy hit him about as hard where he lived as you could possibly hit a person. It did. Uh, fatherhood was, he felt his most important job, mm-hmm. you know, more than being a doctor, even more than being a husband. I mean, it's like, you know, you have kids, and you know, you, you, you love your wife, and then these kids come along, and it's like, well, you know, you had no idea. And and they were gone, and they were, and they were taken from him uh, as horrible as a, a car accident or something would be. They were, they were tortured in his home while he was there. You know, it was the worst... Uh, Worst possible circumstances I can I can think of. So, what what does that what does that do to a person? Well, I think it for him, it it's part of what drove him to dig himself out of the hole he he was left in, uh, because he he felt when when his daughters were alive, he told me at one point every day he would try to live up to their vision of him, mm-hmm. and I thought that was kind of beautiful, and I think that that was only amplified after the loss where he he wanted to be the person that they knew him to be and and thought that he was and 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 that he felt that he could be and 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 now he'll do the same thing for his for his son and it it after after the after his daughter's died and and his wife he I don't I don't want to say regret I mean but it was one night we were sitting together at a at a bar near his house and um we had been interviewing for a long day and and just kind of having a beer and we almost maybe even forgot for a minute why what had brought us together it was just kind of a couple guys in a bar and there was some music on playing a band and and he just he after 10 minutes I mean we were sitting there not talking mm-hmm. he put his hand on my shoulder and said spend time with your kids and i mean this was out of the clear blue mm-hmm. and it's that it's advice that you know, every parent's heard. It's sort of like, oh yeah, you know, oh it's time goes by so fast. You know, they grow up so quick. And but to hear it in in that from him in that circuit, that's what was on his mind at that moment. Mm-hmm. And then he talked for a couple minutes about the rat race, and he said they they may ask you for stuff, and they want to go to Disney World, or they want this. And he said he said they just want you. They just want to spend time with you. And and I think he probably thinks about that a lot with his with his new. Uh, son. Well, I think also one of the things that's I think there in your book is the question of how do you be the fa- how can you be the father of two girls who aren't here anymore? But I think he he that's sort of central to what he tries to do in parts of your book. He's still trying to be the father and to be in dialogue, in communion with two girls who are dead, using things that they said while that they were while they were alive, discovering things that they said while they were alive or quotes that were important to them or whatever in order to continue this conversation. Things would pop into his head at, at interesting times, and sometimes it would be a joke. Sometimes he would hear their name. You know, he would hear the name Haley or Michaela referring to somebody else, and, and it, it just it would yank him right right back into his, his 
former life, but and so it was a it was a it's all it's a source of pain, but he's chosen to twist that around and turn it into a source of strength. Um, he spends, you know, he he attended every day of both of the trials, which was like an unbelievable effort. He didn't he didn't have to, and and part of it was well, I you know I couldn't be there for them that day. I can do this for them now and try to and and do my part to try to help get get justice for them. And in in his mind. That made sense, and it was it was a rational thought, and that's why he did what I did, what he did. So I think you're right; that was a, a form of a continuation of his fatherhood of of them, which and, will never end. And Randall, for your father, in a way, there's a similar thing, which is mm-hmm. trying to be your father when I mean you weren't dead, but you were absent in in a lot of different ways. Talk yes. talk about your relationship with your father. Well, I mean, I've always had a um, growing up. I had a close relationship with my father. He was always present. Um, you know, one of my early role models. Um, you know, he was an educator, teacher, um, and you know, as with both of my parents. And um, so, you know, that was one of the things that was very you know near and dear to them was the education component. Um, and so, you know, we had a very close relationship, and it was only you know through you know my actions and what I was doing in terms of you know the drugs and the drug uses that sort of broke that. Um, and at some point, um, we wasn't as, cl- as, as close. Um, and to the point, um, at, toward the end, before I got incarcerated, he wasn't even talking. Um, mm-hmm. We had stopped talking. I, mean, I, I stopped talking to my father for a year. Um, because I think one of the things I was trying to do was sort of blame everybody else for my mistakes and, you know, my, you know, my, the things that were going on in my life. And, you know, I wanted to blame, you know, the people that, you know, that love, probably loved me the most, believe it or not. And so, which happens. Um, and so, um, we had a, it was very, you know, it, at the end, you know, toward, yeah, that, that year was very, you know, it was very rough, but we didn't talk. Um, he didn't even, no matter of fact, um, when I got incarcerated for the second time, which was when I was submitted to, the, to a prison, um, he didn't know I was in jail for a long time because I was just um, so ashamed to even call um, because, you know, um, everything just sort of hit. And I didn't even know how to begin to sort of repair that relationship. Um, and, you know, it just so happens as I decided to call before I was going upstate. And, um, you know, we had a long talk and, um, um, you know, he said, well, I'm with you. And so, you know, my father's never left my side. He was, you know, when I, I had originally got, a, you know, my time and I was prepared to do that time. But I got called back on a modification of sen- of a sen- of sentencing um, in Montgomery County after five years. Um, and my father was in the courtroom um, as my character witness, um, along with my lawyer and a lady named by, by the name of Bonnie Boswell, who was uh, who was working with the Department of Health and Human Services with a program called Jail Addiction Services. Um, so this, this was my team, but um, you know it was really the courtroom scene, um, the, the courtroom thing that you know sort of that happened with my father, and he had to sort of get up and talk and. So and it's almost like you know you you actually watching all this in sort of like this point of view like you know you can I could see the whole courtroom I remember it very clearly because a the prosecutor told me that um you know that I had thirty eight years to get my life together and that you know I just didn't, you know he didn't see any chance that I was ever going to do anything with my life you know that was the first thing that sort of struck me was that you know I was letting somebody determine um, you know who I was and you know because he really didn't know me but my actions you know that's what my actions said. And I had to think about that. Is that really me? Um, but then, too, sort of my father got up and sort of talked for about 20 minutes. Um, and he started from the beginning of, of me. Um, and in, in, a, in a such a way, um, with elegance and grace, that I had, you know, um, by the time he got through, everybody in the courtroom was crying. Um, and that's real. Um, 
And the judge told me um, before she granted my motion that, you know, in a place that was absent of um, fathers, that the, you know, that my father being there said something. Um, and that so she granted my motion for, um, you know, to get out of prison and, and go to this program in North Carolina, sort of start that process of rehabilitation. Um, but, you know, if you know, my father's a very proud man. Um, and so that really took a lot for him to get up and sort of like beg, almost nearly beg someone sort of give me a chance. I never forgot that. Um, and so I resolved that day to sort of, you know, um, for him, you know, my family and the people that are closest to me that sort of love me when I couldn't love myself, um, that I had to sort of become another person. I had to do something better than what I had done because, A, I knew I was better than that. Um, and B, I just knew I hadn't applied and, and you know, I had taken the, the lazy approach and hadn't really tried with my life. And so, uh, yeah, and so today, you know, my father's sort of my biggest supporter, uh, my biggest fan. He always calling me, you know, want to know what I'm doing. He reads everything I write. Um, and so um, I don't think, you know, I would be here in this way without his support. And so it just shows me something about family. But also I tell young kids is that, I mean, I tell family, um, people who have young kids when I'm talking to them, I said, you got to give your kids something to remember, right? You got to give them something to remember when they're early because they gave me something to remember. Hey, I knew right from wrong. I knew I knew those things. Uh, and somewhere along the way, you know, when I was really at my lowest point, you know, I sort of drew on those things to sort of try to come out of that, you know, that thing I had sort of created for myself. All right. We're going to uh, take a break there. Uh, we've got more of Randall Horton, more of Ryan D'Agostino with the story of Dr. William Pettit. After this... We're telling two different stories today, both of them about um, really going into the abyss uh, and then coming uh, as far back out as you can possibly get. Uh, one story is that of The Rising, a book by Ryan D'Agostino, Murder, Heartbreak, and the Power of Human Resilience in an American Town. It's the story of Dr. William Pettit, the story of the Cheshire Murders. Um, and the other story is by Randall Horton. It's called Hook. Uh, it's the story of his life uh, as a drug addict, a drug seller, um, a homeless person for a while, an incarcerated person for a while, and now uh, an ascendant. He is an associate professor of English at the University of New Haven, a poet, uh, and, as I say, the author of this book. So, Ryan, um, I want to talk to both of you a little bit about sort of sources of um, inspiration. Uh, and, and, well, inspiration is a good, it'll do. That's a good, good enough word. One of the things I notice in your book is that um, every chapter, I think just about every chapter, is tweeted, uh, is preceded by a tweet from uh, Bill Pettit. It's always a Bible verse. It's often a very interestingly chosen Bible verse, some of the most poetic uh, and abstract verses from the New Testament uh, punctuate this story. So um, maybe you can, building on that any way you want, talk about where did he find solace? Where did he find inspiration? Clearly the Bible is one of those places. It was, and it's interesting because it's not something he talks about very much. Mm -hmm. um, he's not uh, an avid, uh, he's not like he's at church every day, mm -hmm. but he, he, yeah, he developed this thing where he just kind of tweets. Sometimes it's uh, on a significant day, um, one of his daughter's birthdays or, or, or something like that. Sometimes it's random at, you know, at midnight, he'll, he'll, he'll tweet a, a Bible verse that is appropriate to his life and his story, uh, both sides of it. it it's, um, it may be about the evildoers who walk the earth, or it may be about the love that, that surround and hope that, that surround us. Uh, so it was very interesting. We, I talked to him a little bit about religion and he sort of, 
shakes, nods his head and shakes it back and forth like he's trying to figure out what to say and how to think about it. And I don't think he's quite figured it out. He described his relationship with God once as complicated. Um, his wife was the, the daughter of a uh, minister. Uh, so they were a, uh, a church-going family bringing up their daughters. And, and now it's... Uh, he, he did not reject uh, religion or God after this uh, the way some people do. He didn't embrace it to the extent that some people do. I think he's. I think he may spend the rest of his life figuring out. But you're right. Clearly, we have this. You know, we have this evidence on Twitter of all places of mm-hmm. of, of some comfort uh, or at least interest that he's taking. And in, in he's a he's a very academic guy. He's he that's he thinks in in logical ways, and he he looks for order in the world. He looks for um, sort of constructs and, and things that, that make sense in a logical fashion. He's that kind of a thinker. So uh, maybe he's looking for some sense, looking at almost as, a, you know, in, in a literary way. I don't know that it's, um, that the Bible is inspiring him to, to, to take the footsteps that are necessary to get through his every day, but it's, it's, it's there kind of hovering. Um, Randall, for you, yeah. books become very important. Really, this 38th year of your life is uh, a time of a lot of turning points. It's really kind of the first time you really ever try to write about yourself, even just a few short paragraphs about who you are and, and, and how you've come into this place. But you also start to read books, Autobiography of Malcolm X right. and a series of other books. How Explain why books become important to you in, in beginning to see yourself a different way. Well, um, I guess I had never really just been sort of invested in literature in that way. Um, you know, even going to school and growing up, uh, I read. Um, and I did the things I needed to do to complete my lessons. And, uh, you know, I would read, but I don't want to say I was an avid reader. I did what I needed to do to complete my studies. And so I, I, I never really sort of embraced the idea of literature being sort of this transport, sort of take me places. Um, but, you know, a funny thing happens is when you're incarcerated, um, you tend to uh, you have a lot of time on your hand, obviously. And so uh, my mother actually would send me books. Um, and, you know, I would actually look in the Washington Post. They had a thing called Book World back then. I don't know if mm-hmm. they still have it, you know, the way the, the book thing is going now. Jonathan Yardley. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And so I would see what, you know, what they would recommend. And, you know, a lot of times I would just get titles from there, like um, Call Up Churches Convicted in the Womb. Um, and I think another one was, um, I can't remember. It was a fiction book by maybe somebody like Yolanda Harris. Um, uh, Nathan McCall Makes Me Want to Holler, um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, well, what happens is, for me, I begin to sort of like, you know, so go on the journey with these authors and sort of one of the things is, you know, is like the idea of like getting in, getting yourself into these situations Um uh, but then also, you know, having the resilience sort of to come back. Never really thought about it that way. And so I began to sort of like see some of myself in each one of these books that I would read. You know, if, it, if it was only pieces, um, you know, uh, about, you know, the things that had sort of transpired in my life. Um, and so consequently, at the same time, I was sort of writing. I had been writing these um, things while I was incarcerated in this program, Jail Addiction Services. Um, they would give us these assignments, and so we would have to write these essays at night and sit in a circle the next day and read them. And a lot of them, so some of them appear in my book. Um, actually, I've kept them that long. Um, and there would be things that, you know, you know, write about, you know, the pain that you've caused yourself and others and a specific incident, you know, in which you, you know, need to apologize to someone. or All of these things which I couldn't necessarily articulate, you know, because I was very, you know, quiet person. I kept, you know, my feelings close to my vest. 
uh, especially you know being in that world, I never really you know sort of expressed myself, and then, so at at some point it became very hard for me to express my feelings or how I felt. But you know, I noticed that when I was able to write, I could sort of like work those things out. And then coupled with the idea of reading. Oh, another one was Father and Words by E. Ethelbert Miller, mm-hmm. which was actually, you know, a game changer because I actually reached out and wrote him. Um, and, you know, he would become one of my early mentors when I got out of prison um, and, you know, give me a first blurb on my first book. And um, I'm actually doing his collect. He's a poet, uh, D.C., and, I'm, we, and the, um, the press that I work with, uh, we're doing his collected works. So it's coming full circle. And I could have never imagined that sitting in a cell writing him a letter saying, Dear Ethelbert, uh, I want to be a poet. Let me ask <laughs> you, know? you about one thing about it. I, I think I, I think I read in one of your poems mm-hmm. uh, a description of the maybe the prison guards knocking books over like dominoes. Right. right uh, is, yeah. Was that is that real? I mean, I'm wondering oh, yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of if oh, yeah. among your fellow inmates and among you, the guards, right. whether or not it's there's pushback against this idea that you're going to lift yourself up doing this. Well, I mean, I don't necessarily know if it's pushed back because there was I'm not, you know, I don't want to portray, you know, the, you know, guards in sort of a negative light. I can remember, you know, uh, a couple of guards that I used to, see, you know, when I was in county jail, um, uh, a couple of guards I used to talk to, like after lock-in, we would talk. Uh, and they would have very human conversations, um, and you know, but when I got to prison, it was just sort of a different thing. Um, and you, you know, the idea of yeah, somebody knocking you know books down and all those things, it's within the the whole rubric of, you know, I guess law and order uh, mm-hmm. about contraband, about sort of things. And so um, you kind of left it to your own devices, but, you know, um, things do happen. You know, you know, one of the things I've, I saw early on, um, and, you know, as, as you know, I don't profess to be, you know, sort of like some great miscarriage of justice or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, do, I do admit that I was wrong, but you know, one of the things that I begin to notice about, you know, the narrative on the inside versus the narrative that we get on the outside is very conflicting sometimes. Um, and the things that we we believe and we true we, we dismiss based solely based on whether someone is an incarcerated or not, I find to be, you know, you know, crazy sometimes. Right. Because, and I, I want to know, that's I wanna, the thing, you I, know, because you know what you know what you see. But right. but in the court of law, you know, if I get on the court of law, they, you know, my testimony would probably wouldn't mean anything because I'm a convicted felon. Right? Well, I want to I want to send this one back to Ryan because this, if there's another character in this book who looms as large uh, as Bill Pettit, probably the second closest, it might be Jeremiah Donovan, who's the lawyer for Komisarjevsky, one of the two, so the, the more of the kind of mastermind, if that's the right word, of this uh, terrible crime, and and whose job it is to to deal with exactly what Randall's talking about right now. How do you get people who know, who see this guy not only as an incarcerated person, that's a big enough problem, but as the perpetrator of a really horrible crime, the unquestionable perpetrator of a really horrible crime, how do you get people to see either Hayes or Komisarjewski as human beings? To me, that's one of the big questions that comes up kind of in the, the second half of your book. It was, and, and Jeremiah Donovan is a, is a really a brilliant attorney, and he saw he was saw his his mission very clearly as he was trying to keep Joshua Komarsarjevsky off of death row, and they he admitted basically everything he was charged with. He's, yes, you know he did all of, all of these things, you know almost all these things that he's charged with, and but but he's a person was was Donovan's uh, uh, take and 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 approach, and the way he tried to. You know, essentially prove that Joshua Komarsarjevsky was a human being and not a monster, because I think he was seen as a monster uh, by anyone who heard about these crimes. Was to present his life was to through a series of witnesses 
who had grown up in similar circumstances or, or even in his own family. And it was uh, certainly proved to be a, a bizarre and terrible upbringing um, uh, with lots of details about strange religious practices and shame and, and, and things like that. But uh, I think that uh, and, and, and Donovan, he's, I said, I said, well, how do you you know, you know what he did? And, and Donovan himself has has daughters. And I said, you know, how do you how do you how do you do that? How do you I, I know you believe that the death penalty is wrong. And that's a that's a that's your single biggest motivator. But this was so, so bad and so, so far outside the bounds of of humanity. How do you for a client like this? How do you do it? And he said, I, I do it like I approach it the way. I do every client. I pretend, what if he was my nephew and he came to me looking for representation? What would I do to try to, to, try to help my nephew? And so it becomes, you, you sort of have to, according to what Donovan and I talked about, you have to kind of change your whole mindset, almost like taking on a character the way an actor does. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that this person is a relative of mine and I'm going to do everything I can and I'm going to say what I need to say to to do what I feel is my job. Now uh, it didn't it didn't work, and and Bill's Bill Pettit's uh, standpoint, of course, I think understandably was, you know, a lot of people have bad childhoods and they don't do this, you know. And there is a tension within the book between yeah. Donovan. His job is to do anything he can within the limits of the law to advocate for his client, and and Bill Pettit, who really does want the death penalty and, yeah. and seek the death penalty. And Donovan, even I think there were occasions I wrote about where he 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 pushes the limits of the law. He he really walks that that line of what what is allowed, even within the legal profession. There were even some lawyers who questioned his. His his tactics, but I the reason he became uh, a significant character in the book was because he was an, an adversary. He was Bill is a man of of high intelligence. Anyone who knows him will will, will tell you. Donovan too is a very very smart uh, guy. He recently read uh, biographies of of every American president in order. You know he does things like that uh, just to sort of build up his general knowledge. So he and he's a he's a shrewd thinker. Uh, he's very clever. So this was. It was almost, this was a point in 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 Bill's experience that it was almost like Rocky, you know, where he keeps keep getting he's beat down and beat down, and you think it can't get worse. Like after the crimes themselves, that can't it can't get any worse. Then he enters this sort of period of horrible abyss where he doesn't know if he wants to live. That's horrible. Then the trials come along, and he has to relive this. But he gets through the first trial, and it's horrible, and he's there every day, and it's almost in some ways. Worse than when it was ap- actually happening because he's hearing every horrible detail. He gets through that trial. Then the second trial comes along, and he's like, how is this guy still standing? And not only does he have to do it again, but this time the lawyer is Jeremiah Donovan, who is going to give it everything he's got and and uh, and sometimes bend the limits of propriety. So uh, Bill, and it was like, okay, now he's got to struggle through this. So it became... The tension you could feel in the courtroom, and you could you could feel it in our my conversations with with both men after the fact. All right, we're going to grab a quick break. We're going to come back with more of Randall Horton. His book is Hook, a memoir, and Ryan D'Agostino. His book is The Rising Murder, Heartbreak, and the Power of Human Resilience in an American Town. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our interns are Tiana Duquette and Benjamin Esty. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, and more information, go to our website, wnpr.org. 
On tomorrow's show, eating cereal is in decline. What can we do to save it? Now, back to Colin. This is one of the oddities of my life. Today we are doing a, uh, a show about two of the more soul-wrenching stories you're ever going to hear, the story of Randall Horton and his uh, time as a drug addict, a drug seller, uh, a man in a world of violence and betrayal uh, and culminating, if that's the right word, in a period of homelessness followed by a, a time in prison and then coming back uh, to be uh, a scholar uh, and a writer, and a, a published poet and a, now a published memoirist in the book Hook, and then the story of uh, Bill Pettit and his family, uh, and the Cheshire Murders, which is uh, chronicled in Ryan D'Agostino's book, uh, The Rising, Murder, Heartbreak, and the Power of Human Resilience uh, in an American Town. So, and then tomorrow we're going to talk about cereal. So, uh, just like, <laughs> we're going to eat cereal. We're going to eat cereal in the studio, too. You're going to be really annoyed. We'll be crunching the whole time. So, um, Randall Horton, I think you've answered this question already in a couple of ways, but I, I think uh, um, it's worth uh, talking about a little bit more. I think, you know, your story's a remarkable one, and it's the outlier rather than the typical one, right? right. Yeah, Most right. of the people who are in prison for drug offenses, for burglary, for whatever, you know, they, they're not going to get out and become college professors and right. have, have their books published. Right, right. So then the question becomes, why you? Well, we've answered the question a little bit. Some of it's your father. You had a father who knew mm-hmm. when was the right time to kind of almost cut you loose and mm-hmm. say, nope, can't help you anymore. Right. Go fall as far as you need to. And then when to come back to you and, and to help you out. Not everybody has that father. A lot of people in prison, their stories are stories of having essentially no father. So that's one answer. There are other people. There's the person that your book is partly uh, epistolary. I can't say that. (laughs) Epistolary. (laughs) Epistolary uh, in style. So you're writing uh, some, there are letters going back and forth here in this book between you and a person. uh, L. 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 L, Yeah, Yeah, L. So maybe it's sort of the tie to that person. But I guess the question I really want to ask you is, do you feel like you could go into any prison in the country and talk to people who are doing time for offenses comparable to yours and maybe worse than years and find something in them that could help them get back out, get up and out the way you have? Well, I think so, man, because that's one of the things I do. I do a lot of prison work um, in adult detention centers and juvenile detention centers. Um, I I work extensively. Um, yeah, I've done it all over the country and maybe probably about 10 or 12 states. I don't want to name them all, but that's, some, that's one of the things that, that, that I sort of um, I do. Um, I came I, I came to find out early on when I was in sort of like this you know trying to you know find my way and I started going back to school and I was doing workshops I was writing I was publishing and I was sort of making my way in the literary this sort of literary arena in the world um, and um, when I was working with young kids um, and I, I would I, I found out that I had this sort of gift or this sort of you know thing to be able to connect with them, especially with some of the, the kids where that were at risk. Um, I can just name several opportunity, several instances in which you know I sort of talk, telling my story, and then you know there's some this 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 little kid in the back, um, this little teenager, um, and you know it's not really saying a whole lot. And then I begin to talk to him and say that's my story. And so one of the one of the things I begin to realize early on is that the kids that come from these sort of situations that need to see or you know need to see a way out, a lot of times they're going to connect more with me than they will with anybody else because after about thirty minutes and open my mouth, they really realize that I do come from that kind of world or 
I do understand because I've done things that, you know, most of the people that they're, they're trying to get them to do things just haven't done. And so that relatability factor is real huge. It's real huge. You um, know, is there really a way out? I mean, one of the things we've, we're in a national, <laughs> we're in a national dialogue yeah. right now about incarceration, right. about the incarceration, particularly of young black men. Right, right. It, it's at, at a rate that has no parallel in the world. I mean, right. we have, you know, a bigger jail population right. than, than anybody. Right. So there's a sense maybe in your book even that the system is rigged against success as opposed to well, promoting I mean, success. Obviously, I mean, getting out is, is a, in, in trying to, you know, forge a life. Like you say, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not the rule. I'm the exception. Uh, I just think it just was a, a, lot, a, a lot of factors in my life, and I just sort of I made this resolve. But um, it's not, it's not, the, it's not the norm. And so uh, I do understand that that you know I have a, a responsibility, or I, I it, it, because of the, you know the way that the things that were allowed to happen to me, and the way I sort of you know was able to get my life on track to sort of like you know to sort of give that back. And that you know, I guess I'm getting off quick. Can you answer that? <laughs> repeat that question one more time. Well, I mean, do you think the system exists to to, to produce outcomes like yours, or no. does the system exist to keep people? I mean, where they every, are. Yeah, everywhere step of the way I sort of found, even when I wanted to go back to Howard after, you know, this whole, for seven years, just dreaming about going back and completing my degree, um, I was not allowed to complete that degree because of my felony convictions. Um, even in my first year at New Haven, I was a lecturer before I got on the tenure track and eventually got tenure and all that. Um, I got in a job at uh, Central State uh, in Ohio uh, as a distinguished scholar in residence, um, and I was going to go out there for a year and just be a distinguished scholar. And, and, and um, the provost sent me a registered letter, told me that they didn't want me um, because of that. Um, and so there's, there's, there's these things that sort of happen. Even if, even if you remember the girl in my book, Elle, um, mm-hmm. she talks about, because she was in concert. I met her, I met Elle, um, you know, when I was getting my, my PhD at SUNY. We had both been incarcerated, so we had sort of had this sort of kinship, um, and which is, you know, one of the things um, that sort of, you know, made us friends. But more so than that, I remember when she had gotten out um, and trying to get a job, um, trying to, you know, she could never get past her felony convictions. And, one of, and even, with she, even with a college degree, it was just so hard. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I mean, I think and I think the way that we even, you know, address those things, you know, when people get out, like how, how like if when you get out, it, can you cash the check? Mm-hmm. Or is there insufficient funds? Can you really cast a check? Yeah. Have you really paid your debt? Are you really free to do what you folks you know, that you're trying to do? And I would say, you know, no, you're not uh, to a certain extent unless you have, you know, you know, I had a fa- I had a support system. You know, I, I can give you, you know, at least, you know, numerous people who sort of came out with me or people that I, you know, that I, that came out r- around my time who sort of fell back, right? Or and back that, and, that, or, and or back incarcerated right now. They just, you know, they could, they, they couldn't get the toehold or the footing to sort of move forward. You know, that's another commonality between these two books: the stories of support systems. I mean, the reason I think Bill Pettit makes it to the degree that he has is the support system. Um, and but as we're wrapping up here, Ryan, um, you know, uh, a lot of both of your books are also about the fact that we live in the present, but we also live in the past. You know, as much as we can, we try to live in the present, particularly if our past is full of darkness. Randall's past is full of darkness and sad stories. He'd like to live mainly in the present and close the books on the past. So, so would Bill Pettit, right? He would like to live in the present, close the books on the past. Your book ends with him with his eight-month-old son asleep on his chest. Um, but there's a way in which 
you don't ever he doesn't ever close the books on there. I mean, I'm sure he'd love never he'd want to never hear the names Commissar Jeski and Hayes again, never think about those people. But there's no way for him to be real without living somewhat in the past. Of course, and he and he doesn't want to. Of course, he doesn't want to forget his family that he had. You know, and and that was you know 20 years of 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 a wonderful life and at the same and, and his his new his his wife Christine's current wife Christine who is who is just wonderful and she fully understands the the situation that she married into I guess I mean she knows that if all had gone according to plan you know he would still be married with his two daughters from from before and that's an that's an that's an odd situation but she has embraced that with with great strength so I think that what I mean what I hope people see in this and I think what you know kind of what you were what you and Randall were getting on when he goes into prisons and 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 talks to people and and it, it does the does Randall's story is that possible for other people right, right. and I think that's why when people heard the story of what happened to Bill Pettit the reason it commanded so much of our attention a, a, across the country and around the world was because of course you you look for yourself in these stories right. we look for ourselves in Randall Horton and in Bill Pettit and we wonder could I do that would I have had the strength whether it was when they were at their lowest point, when you're on the streets or when Bill is tied up in that basement, you know, in that moment. But then in, from, in a bigger sense, after that, could I, do I have that strength inside me to keep going? And I think what Bill, people wonder, is he superhuman? Or is Randall Horton superhuman? Does he have something that I don't have? Is he like a magic person? Right. No. You know, we, we all have the strength, you know, way down deep somewhere inside to find our ways no matter what. The question is, can can we can we dig it out and and actually use it? And that's a much harder thing than 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 it than it seems. But it it, it bore out in both of these stories. I think so. We're going to have to end here. Although I would say, going back to Dante, it helps to have a Virgil and it helps to have a Beatrice. Uh, and Beatrice uh, seems to maybe be L, L, the person that Randall Horton corresponds with in his book. And for Bill Pettit, Beatrice now I think is Christine, uh, the woman who who fell in love with him after his tragedy and helped make him human again. So uh, these, this has been an amazing conversation. I think you guys should now just take this on the road and go, <laughs> go talk to other audiences. You're, you're a perfect pair. So Ryan D'Agostino, your book uh, is The Rising, Murder, Heartbreak, and the Power of Human Resilience in an American Town. Randall Horton, uh, his book is A Hook, A Memoir. This is the story uh, of his time in prison uh, on the streets and, and afterwards. Uh, he's an associate professor of English at the University of New Haven. We'll be back tomorrow with a very different kind of show.